You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. This is Stop Motion Music, the title track from the CD soon to be released by composer Neil Thomas Smith. The CD has been several years in the making and features musicians from across genres, including Carla Rees on flutes and Delia Stevens on percussion, as well as harpist Esther Swift, cellist Duncan Strachan and Justina Jablonska and jazz drummer Simon Roth. Neil is fascinated by the connections between sound, space and movement and with each new piece takes the chance to explore something new, leading to a diverse range of work. Hello, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. You're most welcome. So producing this CD over the past few years, I can imagine would be quite a large undertaking. You've taken a leading role in the production and organisation as well as self-releasing. So how has this process been? Yeah, it's been it's been long. Um, obviously, kind of COVID came in the middle, although it was sort of planned as semi-COVID safe to a degree. But it's, uh, it's proven to be one of those projects that there's always another stage. So uh, especially when you're writing it, so you've written all the music and you're like, great, this is, this is most of the way there. And then you record it and you're like, fab, we've done, <laughs> we've done the recording on like, a, a number of um, sometimes in- incredibly stressful <laughs> <laughs> days. And then, then you do the mixing and for stop motion music, uh, it turned out I'd written like 25 minutes worth of music. So it, that was a, a big job stitching that together. I'll, I'll come on to who did that. I should point out that wasn't me. Um, and uh, and then there's the, the mastering. And then obviously you've got to go out and, and try and promote it as well once it's done. So there's always uh, another level to, to get to. Um, but at the same time, it has been really rewarding. And as you see it come together in particular, it's it's really, really nice. What you need to do something like this, though, as well, is a group of people who are really amazing at what they do. So I had um, Simon Patterson at Nottingham. He 
did most of the editing and the mixing and mastering. And he's responsible for stop motion music, which, as, you say, as I say, was a massive job. And I'm, I'm really pleased with how that came out. And he put in so much work into that. Um, and also, obviously, the performers as well. You rely on these people to do a good job in in what are, as I say, quite stressful circumstances. So I was just so pleased to be working with the people I was working with and to produce what I think is a really nice, a really great product to the end. Did the music already exist or did you write these pieces with the idea of putting an album of these pieces together? It was a mixture of things and I had to, I had to sort of go back through my files on my computer and try and sort of piece together what existed when and how. Most of it's fairly new, so Scaffold for Simon's the oldest, and that started in 2014. So most of it was written with the vague knowledge that there'd be some kind of collection, but not the certain knowledge that would be part of this CD, uh, apart from um, the latest piece, which was the uh, Progressions of Memory for a Baroque Flute, which we'll talk about later. That was uh, written with, with knowledge that would be on the, the CD and, and in some ways to, to fill it out to be a nice uh, ending for it. I think the CD exists to a degree in order to give myself an outlet for my work. So pre-pandemic crisis, I kind of had my own personal mini crisis uh, creatively, <laughs> creatively, which was kind of, I'd maybe, it must have been for, for over 10 years, I'd, had, I'd always had something to write, like the next piece. I knew what it was going to be in terms of like there was some kind of opportunity, some kind of performance that I knew was coming. Obviously, when you're studying, that's uh, it's going to be the case. But I hit this moment where there was nothing. And you think, okay, what do I do? I could do anything, but when you do any, when you can do anything, what what is it you can you do? Um, so in some ways, I, I created the CD to uh, have have an outlet and to have something that that really was me in a way, um, and that I could give to people. When people somebody asks you like, what kind of music do you write? Well, it's it's it will be great when I can just hand over the CD and it's like, oh, it's a bit like this. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, it's almost exactly like this. <laughs> but um, when you don't have something to write, I think you get asked questions about your status as a composer um, and what you're doing and the difference between what you're doing and some kind of glorified, expensive hobby. Um, and, you know, perform there have been performance opportunities since then, but I had to sort of confront those questions a little bit. And the CD is maybe part of the, the, the therapy for, uh, for, for those, those moments. I don't know if you've had moments where you have nothing to write or maybe, maybe it's enjoyable as well. I don't know. I think it, that creating a CD could be prescribed to a whole range of, um, <laughs> sort of lost composers. <laughs> um, but maybe it's, it's nice some maybe it would be nice in some ways to have a, a break from just this feeling like you have to make something new. Maybe it, it's quite nice to have some longevity to something you've written, you know, be like, here it is and it exists. It'll exist beyond the, the 20 minute performance or whatever, you know. Definitely. That's really what um, uh, what was attractive about it. And also in terms of the, the pieces that uh, I did write, no one asked me to write any of them which in some ways is bad because you're like, oh, well, maybe nobody wants to hear them. But on the other hand, you're like, actually, I can write whatever I want. And there's no way somebody was going to ask me to write a piece for three flutes and vibraphone. 
Uh, and I'd had an, an idea of that piece for, for a long time. So it was, I was beginning to start that piece when the pandemic hit almost exactly. So it was I also at that time, I was like, okay, actually, this is a really great opportunity to write something that uh, the, those pieces, which you maybe carry around with you and are all and kind of at the, the back of your mind that you really think there's something there and you don't always get a chance to explore it. And, um, I think at some point it's great to be able to take those opportunities and really, really go for it. So we've heard a snippet of stop motion music, um, the first piece in the album. Could you tell us a little bit about this piece? The There's sort of two streams that fed into the title. The first one, and the, perhaps the, the most important one, the most relevant one to this piece, is that in the past I've composed stuff, and I, I think I've been happy with some of the pieces, but there's been very few pieces where I've thought, you know, there's not enough in this piece. There's not enough material. It's um, it sort of goes to too few places. It's too concentrated, and it made me reflect that I kind of really want to pare it down a little bit. Really use the material that I'm using as uh, sort of uh, get the most out of it in a way. So for this piece, it really started as some kind of vision, some kind of idea of the colour that I was looking, the sound colour that I was looking for. I'm not in any way synesthetic and don't normally talk about pieces in these terms, but this this was the sort of idea I was carrying around with me was this sense of uh, the sine waves, the vibraphone and the flutes creating this particular colour and really just trying to zone in on that and really kind of over and over again trying to exploit what interests me about that colour and not go too many places, not try to build up to too many climaxes. And I think, at least when I was learning composition from excellent teachers, there's no no, uh, reflection on them, but I think British composition education is very much learning about motives, about how they fit together, building up to a climax, earning your climax, getting a a structure that quote-unquote works. Um, And that creates this kind of music which is quite busy in terms of its its narrative i was looking to kind of stop that narrative for me personally The thing that does really interest me is using uh, electronics or electronic sounds 
to adapt or manipulate the, the resonance of acoustic instruments. So in this case, basically you get um, like seven pound tiny speakers off of an evil online retailer. And you put them in the vibraphone resonators, which are kind of tubes that come down from all the, from the uh, different uh, bars of the vibraphone. Uh, and in these tubes are, are the, the paddles, which give the, when you have the motor on the vibraphone, give it its kind of whoa, 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 whoa sound. Uh, and if you put sound tones or sounds through those speakers, then you get a kind of um, an interaction between those sine waves and the, the sound of the vibraphone, which is kind of can be quite sine wavy to begin with. And then obviously add the flutes, which are probably the most sine wavy uh, orchestral instrument, apart from violin at certain points. But um, so this mixture of sounds is, is really key to the piece and what was what interested me. So Scaffold for Simon is the next piece on the CD, which is a solo piece written for jazz drummer Simon Roth. You essentially give a framework to the drummer and the rest is up to them. What inspired the unusual structure of this piece? Prior to a lot of the works on this CD, the thing that I would say most interested me about music was combining different uh, feels of time at the same time or kind of one after the other. So um, what you might call polytemporality, but it doesn't have to be sort of stuff in different time signatures all the time. So this piece... um, it's basically a collision between three different tempi and obviously on the drums, that means like three different grooves. So um, it was a way of exploring this, this interest in different fields of time uh, in music in a, a solo piece, because normally, obviously, you need more than one instrument. And what I quite like is the counterpoint between these, these different grooves. And that I find that really, really interesting if you can have this complex uh, almost like physical sensation of different times happening simultaneously.
So it started as a piece for two cellos, then it became a piece for one cello, then it became a piece for two cellos again. common thread and the idea to which manual refers is that there, there are no bows involved in this piece. It's all done with pizzicato or kind of various pizzicato techniques. The other thing I think which also is connected to that is I was interested in the movement of the hands um, once you take away the, the bows, then it becomes watching it a sort of very tactile experience, um, or, well, I don't know, sort of vicariously tactile. And you see the cellists manipulate their instruments. The cellists um, will kind of be swapping and sometimes their hands move together and sometimes their hands move opposite. And there's these phasing episodes where you will see the hands moving in time and then moving out of time, then moving back into time, but perhaps they were together and then they become apart and were apart and then come together. So that, that was the initial interest as well. I just wonder like how you found me working the material I know you said you haven't done it terribly often in your in your music but I mean I know myself when I finish a piece I, I can't imagine it any other way and even like when I'm in composition lessons and stuff and someone's like oh I think you need like a bar or two in there before you get to that chord or whatever and I'm like how like I can't possibly it's like you know having a dress and someone's like oh you need like a third sleeve coming out the back and I don't know like I'm always fascinated by people that have several iterations of pieces and stuff like spell your secrets well yeah like well I, I agree like most of the time I've found it difficult before if I've had to if a piece um has been reperformed or that hasn't happened that often it's more more that perhaps I've had a piece performed and then maybe I want to put it in for like a competition or something like that and, and I'll do a new version of it because there are parts of it I find problematic and then I try and do a new version of it and you get into these kind of old problems that maybe you don't really understand anymore um, how the how the material relates and various things I find that tricky or, um, or you've got a piece and there's some bits you love and then some bits you're like, okay, that didn't work. And then you cut out the bits that didn't work and try and stitch together the bits that did work and it just doesn't come out right. So, yeah, you, usually I would find it tricky. But I think um, increasingly, well, I don't think I have as many ideas as I used to. And I think that's, I, I hope slash think that I'm not alone there. So I think maybe as, uh, oh, God, not that old but as, as you get quote-unquote older maybe you have fewer ideas and you you but you know what interests you so you rework the things a little bit more that that interest you um so in some ways I can I do find it quite attractive perhaps having some kind of like series of pieces that you have an idea and you you try and work it out in different ways and kind of go deeper but that's a little bit different having these specific pieces where things happen in an order and then somebody says, oh, what about you, you change that around? You're like, no, 
Uh, <laughs> it's more like there's this kind of amorphous uh, blob of material or an idea that you just keep on trying to approach from different directions and you'll never fully kind of encapsulate it. Moving on to the music lesson, uh, which is for speaking harpist, this piece addressed head-on the abuse that has sadly taken place in instrumental music lessons. As someone who has thankfully not experienced this, what compelled you to write this piece? I had the idea for the piece before I had a sense that, or a compulsion, that um, this is an issue that I needed to address. So I'll say that because I think it's quite difficult if you have like a really important and sensitive issue and you're like, how do I make a, a piece of this in some way? So I think climate change is the big one. Like, How do you make a successful climate change piece? Ask Lisa Robertson. She did a great one. But it can feel overwhelming and it's very hard to come up with um, an, a musical aesthetic form to like deal with this issue that is so important to you and so many other people so in this way it was kind of well sort of fortunate but it's maybe the for me at least the right way around to do it that you have this idea of how to approach a, a topic rather than sort of going from the topic to the musical idea um obviously both ways can work but this way is definitely a lot easier and there's definitely a question about whether sort of this is my story to tell but I did think it was an issue that no piece I've ever heard has dealt with and it's probably one of the most music relevant issues that I know like music well it's not it isn't music specific but there's definitely a connection if you google music lesson abuse something like that, you know just tabloid headline after tabloid headline about uh, instrumental teachers that have abused kids basically in my music education, although I definitely did not suffer from abuse from, from any of my teachers who were all, to a person, amazing, and I, to whom I owe a huge amount. At the same time, the, uh, the places that I went, I certainly, like everywhere, I saw behavior that wasn't acceptable and I heard about things that weren't acceptable. And I hope it's changed to a degree um, I think people are more aware of it, certainly, than like 30 years ago. But it struck me that there is an opportunity to, to try and write a piece that deals with this uh, issue in music, because I think music has something to answer for there. And we kind of think outwardly so often in terms of like political message or environmental message, and maybe also some introspection is also called for. Right. 
So I wonder when you were obviously working with this subject matter, how did the, the spoken word and the music interact with each other? This was really the kernel of the idea that I, that I had for the piece was that there would be snippets of text and each snippet of text would be related to a musical idea, most of which follow the vague rhythm of speaking that piece of text. Not that Esther follows that rhythm um, because actually when you're playing it sometimes it's better to sort of play the note and then say the word um, just so that you can actually hear all the stuff that's going on and then the whole piece is basically made up of um, permutations of these snippets and more and more text is added so you become more and more aware of the situation in the middle of which are interspersed these kind of performance like um, passages which are sort of my attempt to write uh, classic harp music, which I was told was not entirely effective. <laughs> Sorry, it was not entirely, yeah, didn't entirely do the job in terms of still felt slightly, for Esther it didn't feel like absolutely perfectly idiomatic uh, harp writing necessarily. Um, and the, those performances sort of become more and more um, complex, uh, i.e. there's a sort of... Uh, improvement in the harpist as the piece goes on because that's something I, I wondered about was if you if you learn an instrument in the, uh, well in kind of any kind of setting that, that there's an unequal relationship or in any kind of setting where the, the relationship is, is is not good then you're still learning the instrument you may still love the instrument your your whole experience of of learning your whole experience of Access to music is tied up with this um, 
unhealthy relationship. And that for me was part of the point of the piece was to link specifically musical ideas and experiences to the potential abusive situation. Other than the big CD release, do you have anything else that you would like to plug? The other thing that I'm working on is a what we're describing as a music-driven puppet show with a 12th Day Duo, who are the aforementioned Esther Swift and Katrina Price, uh, and then a puppeteer called Jemima Hughes. And we're and I'm doing the music. We're trying to create this puppet show where the musicians are involved also as puppeteers and the harp becomes kind of part of the set and also the puppeteer sings so yeah that's also an interesting process another process that is like there's always another layer you know you've got the music done and you need to think about the direction and finding somewhere to put it on and promoting blah 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 but uh, that that's the that's the next thing and uh, yeah i'm looking forward to getting that developing a little bit also, it made me realize, though, if you're doing a show, you, you re- again, you need collaborators because I'm not a director, it turns out. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, it'll be really interesting. Did you to... give it a bash, though? Well, kind of, yeah. But I think the thing is, I, you know, I'm a composer. I wanted music to be like a... Re- I didn't want it to be just incidental. I wanted the music to be kind of driving the, the ideas and to be kind of... For the puppets to be like interacting in a musical way. Um, so it's good in some ways that we had this time with just musicians and the puppeteer, but also you need perhaps a story and (laughs) some things connecting it and things like that. So other than that, I would just give a shout out to my partner, Rachel, who's uh, looking after our baby, who's six weeks old today and has allowed me to come here. So uh, (laughs) also it's, you know. Four hours sleep on a two-bed, on a two-person sofa is definitely uh, the ideal preparation for a, an in-depth podcast chat. So I, th- <laughs> I hope it's been semi-coherent. Oh, you've, done, you've done well. You've done well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to play you out, we're going to hear part of Progressions of Memory for Baroque Flute. Can you introduce it for us before we listen? Yeah, so um, I am a... a sort of, to be honest, semi-lapsed flautist. When playing the flute, I particularly liked and responded to the Baroque repertoire. This piece is for Baroque flute, so the actual period instrument, and it takes chord progressions from a Handel flute sonata and repeats them over and over, kind of putting it through almost different filters uh, and different uh, ornamentations. Um, and one of the main ones is through overblowing. So um, you're kind of playing what is actually quite a simple progression in E minor as it is, uh, and you do various sort of overblowing techniques to give this 
spectrally um, interesting timbre. So it is a piece that, that really has this Baroque music at it, at its heart and the, the kind of progressions of memory idea, I suppose, is that I was really thinking about playing the flute a lot while uh, writing it. Um, I had a, I borrowed a, a Baroque flute off Richard Craig. Thank you, Richard. And um, was playing around with it and was thinking about my learning of the flute quite a lot while I was uh, playing around with these chord progressions. One of the pieces that was sort of recorded in an actual a resonant space so it was recorded in the recital hall in Nottingham and that was also nice to have that experience because it was um there was a lot less editing involved and it felt a little, a little bit more natural you used kind of longer passages uh, and Carla prepared it really nicely <laughs> 